Greetings, and welcome to Flanagan's Ecologic. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and for this episode of Ecologic, we're joined by Lauren Faber O'Connor. She's the Chief Sustainability Officer for the City of Los Angeles. She's been at the helm for the past five years. I'm just delighted to have her on the show today. Lauren, welcome to the show. It's great to meet you and to have you on the show. Thanks, Ted. Great to be here. How are you today, anyway? I am good. It has, we're coming off of an incredibly hot uh, couple of weeks here in LA. We've had record-breaking temperature, and this week has been you know, 10, 15 degrees cooler, which is still very hot, but nothing like what we experienced. So I'm feeling good. And you grew up in LA, you just told me. I did. I grew up in LA, but I actually never thought I would live and work, have a career, have a family in LA. I thought I was going to hightail it out of LA. Where were you going to go? Where were you going to go? It was sort of an anywhere, but no, it wasn't anywhere but LA, but I really did want to be in what I felt like were the, you know, ground zero of policymaking on climate change. So I I guess I kind of thought that that was probably going to be more a DC, a New York, a San Francisco, even a Sacramento. And I actually went to all those places. (laughs) I tried them all out. Yet. Here I am back in L.A. Isn't that great? Well, you're you. We need you here. We need you here. That's for sure. <laughs> and so you just said that. I mean, did you did you really think of sustainability very early off in your I mean, in your childhood even? I did. I did. My mom even pulled out some drawing. I don't know how old I could have possibly been. Single digits for sure. And I was writing about not littering. Um, and there was pictures of like Coke cans and things on the ground. I don't know. I, I honestly don't remember that part. But, you know, when I was in high school, um, and it's just one of those really great stories of how important education is at a young age, because when I was in high school, I was exposed to issues of, you know, in, of the environment and the challenges going on in the environment by a really passionate teacher um, who, you know, set me up with a summer internship when I was a junior or senior or something like that. And honestly, I was so compelled about, of course, growing up here about air pollution and, and smog. Uh, and so I did, I kind of knew that when I was going to go off to college, I was going to work on those issues. That's so cool. You we're we're a little similar. I I, I started a recycling <laughs> I started a recycling program at my elementary school. Oh my gosh. Years later I had to go back and receive some award and uh You had to, you just had to. <laughs> <laughs> but then um all right, so then high school and then I I've been doing a little bit of uh research about you. It sounds to me like you you went to Stanford. Right? I did. And then you went to Columbia. That's right. right. So yeah. that's that's your educational path, and uh, yeah, and and in Columbia you were really focused right in on climate. It sounds like actually both uh, both undergrad and grad school. I was one of those, you know, some people may call it a nerd, some people may call it very determined, but I, you know, was one of those few that that declared my major uh, halfway through freshman year, <laughs> and then spent you know like the rest of freshman year trying to recruit others to what was what is called the Earth Systems Program. And there were very few at the time interdisciplinary environmental science, policy, economics programs that existed sort of in the university system. The the notion of an interdisciplinary education was very new. 
but it made so much sense for me personally, my interests, um, which enabled me to go, you know, pretty deep in everything, all the sciences, um, you know, economics, but then you get to choose your path from there. And I wanted to go into more of the social sciences side and studied environmental economics, got a minor in economics as well. So now, you know, as I've been mentoring young people and seeing where they're applying to college and grad school, I'm just so excited and pleased to see how much the, the notion of interdisciplinary education has really taken off in really creative ways across the country because of the, you know, now the recognition that climate change and really being able to um, foster, you know, change agents in the, this issue of climate change, they really have to understand how everything is interrelated, the science, you know, behavior, energy and markets, uh, all together, natural systems, and, and the human influence on them. So that was my early interest. And then at Columbia, I was able to just continue down that road, really focus in on kind of the international um, international climate policy. I think at the time, my impression was, if you're going to go solve climate, you've got to go to that international global level. It's a global problem, you need global solutions. And then I think if you look at my career, I got really went from global down to national, down to state, down to local sequentially. And I don't know if that's a product of just sort of learning where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of encouraging to think that, well, you knew exactly what you wanted to do. I've always heard that it's only doctors that have that early clarity <laughs> on their career, but, but maybe we met, we're all earth doctors, right? Maybe, maybe yeah. earth doctors great, right? Right. Yeah. recognize at a very early age that this is our passion in this. I mean, I was the same as you. I, that, that was the yeah. only thing I was going to do with my career, period. And uh, I really never questioned it. Never. Yeah. 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 Well, that's so great. And then, you know, let's talk about some of those early jobs. Environmental Defense Fund, Cal EPA, Lighthouse Consulting. Those that, that were all your early jobs, right? Well, I think like the biggest one that shaped me in my early career was actually working for the British government for, at the British Embassy in Washington, D.C. And the way I got there, because, you know, most people think an embassy, you know, a consulate, what do they do? They they stamp visas, they process passports, and you know they they're in and out of um, security clearances and things like that. But actually, it's a pretty substantive policy and diplomacy outfit. And when I was in grad school in New York, and I was trying to you know study, turn in research papers on climate policy, you know there weren't a lot of examples to pull from at that time. Um, this was almost twenty years ago now. Twenty years ago, yeah, and. Um, where I kept my research kept taking me was, was to the EU, but really specifically to the UK. Uh, and they were, you know, they had developed a voluntary carbon market. They were working with the EU to develop a, a you know, EU wide emissions trading system. And they had tons of examples, early, early examples of climate action. So I, I kept researching the UK and again, the importance of really taking advantage of, of education, you know, a professor kind of took note, she had contacts at the British embassy, helped me talk to them just as part of my research and developing those relationships. And it's so important to develop relationships led me to a job opportunity that was just incredible to be at the embassy um, as an American, but in a, you know, being able to really rise in the ranks of the British system <laughs> in, in Washington, DC. And really, because the the because climate change was such a big 
uh, priority to the UK government, um, being able to push, cajole, engage the US government on climate change, which was at the time during the Bush administration, was a top priority. And so we had really every you know, luminary and senior representatives from the British government and British community coming through the United States. And those were the folks that I got to work with and engage in. And actually, because of the state of climate policy at the federal level, begin to devise strategies that took a while for a foreign government to really embrace, but they did, which is working with states. And at the time, the state of California was working through the passage of AB 32. And we actually provided directly a lot of technical assistance to, to help the elected officials and regulators in California kind of get that confidence that what they were pushing for, which had never been done before in, in the United States, they needed the confidence that it was going to work. Um, and that's what led me then to the state of California years later. That's a really interesting story. I, I, I never thought about, it. I mean, I've been, I've been, I visited Leicester, which I think was, uh, one of the first environment cities that Prince Charles set up. Uh, but I never thought of the, of the Brits as being uh, particularly ahead of the curve. And, you know, I like to think of us as we were, um, we were major environmental advocates disguised as diplomats. And that really let you into, you know, different settings. Um, than you know most advocates at the time, and and frankly, you know Governor Schwarzenegger and Prime Minister Blair struck up a really close personal relationship as a result, um, and that that was incredibly fruitful. And they learned a lot of lessons. And then I had the opportunity to go work for Governor Schwarzenegger and um, at the California EPA as the Assistant Secretary for Climate Change, um, continue on with Governor Brown and really help get AB thirty two across the finish line it had already been passed, but the regulations that needed to be designed, um, you know, get those through uh, by the time that the governor, Governor Schwarzenegger was out of office and really helped build up the program at the beginning of the Brown administration. How oh, great, how oh, great. And then how did you come to LA? I know LA is your hometown, but how did you? Uh, well, again, I never would have predicted it. <laughs> So, you know, what happened was I had the chance to come to, to go work for Environmental Defense Fund as their West Coast political director. And, you know, I really had just tremendous respect for EDF when I was at Cali PA. They're such a respected or global organization and had so much to offer to the state of California that then to kind of work as their, their West Coast political director, it exposed me to so many topics um, on the environment, water, ecosystems, energy, climate, of course, my, you know, my sweet spots previously. But what that also did was have me kind of work throughout the state of California more and not just stay up in the Bay Area and Sacramento when I was at Cali PA. So I actually was down in LA more often. I mean, look, half the population is down there, right? I was actually down in uh, Cal or Los Angeles more often than I had been. Usually I would just go down there to visit family for a weekend and then go back to wherever I lived. This time I was, I was there for work. I was there for conferences. I was there for meetings. I was meeting, you know, local community groups. I was meeting small businesses and I kept finding, gosh, I'm kind of disappointed to leave LA to go back to, you know, San Francisco or wherever, because there's so much here. And I was truly, my eyes were opened. I think that Mayor Garcetti 
is just, we can really credit him for so much of that transition in the ethos and just creating an energy around wanting to go green in Los Angeles and recognizing that Los Angeles could actually lead the world in going green. That was not an energy <laughs> I had ever felt. I kind of felt like a fish out of water growing up in Los Angeles. So it was just so wonderful when an opportunity to go work for the mayor came up in his sustainability office. And then you you started out as a, as a deputy. Um, yeah, I came in going, what is local government? <laughs> I actually, you know, was deciding between two jobs. I thought I was going to be going back to, to DC. Um, and I had to make this hard decision. I didn't even tell my family that that LA was an option until I knew it was really going to happen. And I was able to come in as the deputy chief sustainability officer and really go from a place of you're advocating for policies, you're designing policies, you actually have to make them work on the ground, you have to show that they're going to work, you have to um, uh, make sure that people are positively impacted by the programs that you're putting in place, you have to gain acceptance across institutions you know, for implementing new and different things, doing the same work, but differently. Uh, you really have to show that it can be done, which was uh, daunting, but something I felt was a really important place for me to go next and and do it in my hometown. Yeah, how exciting. I, I, I'm so proud of LA. And thanks, thanks to people like you and your and your oh. boss, Matt Peterson, my, my good friend. and Such a wonderful, yes, has been just such a wonderful partner. So you were a deputy for three years and then he moved on and you now have been the chief sustainability officer for over five years. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a couple years as, um, I think it was two years as deputy. And again, I mean, the work that had happened before, you know, that, that Matt had put together to develop the city's first sustainable city plan ever. Um, and, you know, the opportunity and the, the trust that the mayor had in me to uh, to move into the chief role. Now, funny, funny story. Um, when this was all happening, I was pregnant and, you know, he said, will you please come, you know, stay and be the chief? And I said, sir, I, you do know I'm pregnant, right? And he's like, that's a totally different conversation. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with this. And I'm very happy for you. And I'm super excited. I'm going to, I want to like swap notes with you how wonderful it is to have a baby girl because he has a girl. Um, and he's like, but well, that's a different conversation. And so, you know, that was also just so wonderful and empowering because it's tough for women and for going, you know, taking the time, feel empowered to take the time, maternity leave, um, which was just never an issue. And it, yeah, it's been, it's been a wonderful five years, almost more that's more than seven years with the mayor. And um, I just am so proud of the work. You know, one of the things that he did very smartly was when the sustainable city plan was released in 2015, he said, we have to update it every four years, which you kind of go, okay, well, that's four years from now. <laughs> we'll deal with that again. It comes up very quickly. Mm -hmm. And it was also kind of a daunting process to think, gosh, we've really just been, you know, getting this moving and really, you know, turning the ship of all of these massively large city departments um, that are changing the way, you know, accepting these new challenges and goals and meeting their goals. So we were setting goals that were three years out and then 10 years and beyond, but we wanted to show real progress in the near term. And 
you know, in going through the process of updating the sustainable city plan into what's now called LA's Green New Deal, and folks can go to plan.lamayor.org to check out LA's Green New Deal and all of our annual, annually released progress reports. Um, it really showed the brilliance of that strategy because honestly, it was time to update our goals, our strategies, our approach. So much had changed over the course of those four years. We had a new sense of urgency coming from the science and IPCC reports. You know, it was the seminal, uh, what was that, 2018 report that we have to cut emissions in half by 2030 globally. Um, the you know our the president you know president trump then had declared that the united states was leaving the paris agreement and cities all over the country were standing up and this was really you know led by mayor garcetti saying we you know if he's out we are in and instead of you know kind of weeping in a corner which maybe we did for like 5 minutes weeping in a corner he was getting on the phone we were getting on the phone and getting other mayors to declare their commitments to the world to show that the U.S. was not turning its back. So all of this um, information and the state of technology and the state of policy had really changed over those four years. And so I think it was a pretty giant leap between 2015 and 2019 in our plans uh, to, to create a new level of urgency, of rigor in our carbon emission reduction pathway um, and cementing how equity plays a core role in our approach to the development of policies and programs. Interesting. And you've got now you here, you got your next update coming up next year. Is that right? Well, you know, we're in a we're, we're about to go through a mayoral transition. Um, the mayor is is termed out at the end of this year and we're in the middle of a mayoral race. So, you know, come November, we will know who our new mayor is. They'll come into the role in December. And so, you know, we need to give that person the opportunity to really put their, you know, stamp on and mark on what, you know, their goals will be for a next iteration of a sustainability plan, of a climate plan. So I think we're going to take a little bit more time on this one to make sure that a person really feels, a new mayor really feels ownership, and that's so important, really feels ownership and understands the progress that's been made. What I feel um, incredibly heartened by is that while climate hasn't played as, as big of a role in the in the election as I might have hoped, um, the, the flip side of that is actually that both candidates have said, this is an area that LA is doing right where LA is leading and where, you know, each of them have said they want to continue that leadership. Yeah, that's great. And it, what a, what an amazing thing. When I came to LA in 1998 to work for one of your departments, uh, DWP. DWP, uh, all right. Yeah, I was the director of energy efficiency. And I must say, we were not a leader um, at all. <laughs> and now LA has become this ex leader extraordinaire. And, you know, you... You must ha you must have a sense of responsibility. I mean, obviously to the people of Los Angeles, um, but also to the to, to the world uh, because LA has become such a has has, has such an important role now. Um, do you feel the weight of that responsibility at being that sort of that model for others? Oh, I definitely feel the weight of that responsibility. It's a good weight, though. You know, I, I think maybe um, what folks don't always 
uh, realize about the city of Los Angeles. I mean, first of all, you know, we are a, a city of 4 million. The impression is that we're a city of 10 million. We're actually one of 88 cities in a county of 10 million, of course, by far the largest city. Um, so we play an important role there. But we also are somewhat unique. Now, this, this happens in other cities, of course, but we have uh, what are known as proprietary departments, uh, a municipal electric and water utility, the largest municipal utility in the country. The port of Los Angeles is a city proprietary department. So we appoint the general manager and the harbor commissioners. It is a city department. It is the busiest port in the Western hemisphere. It is a massive economic engine. It is also a, a pollution center of the United States. You know, we bring in what, 40% of the goods into the rest of the United States, one in nine jobs in the region are connected to the port. It's one in something like 40 jobs in the country are connected to the port somehow. So there's a lot of responsibility and opportunity. And same with LAX. The Los Angeles airport is a city, is a prior, as a proprietary department of the city. And again, it's the third busiest airport in the country. So these are major sources of um, scale for climate action. And what we do and, and test and say, we're going, you know, put a line in the sand in those types of institutions, a massive port, a massive airport, a massive electric and water utility, that has, that has real reverberations throughout the economy, that has real implications on the way technology moves, the way markets move. And, you know, of course, then we have a transit agency and a wastewater agency and, and all kinds of other things. But so that level of responsibility and opportunity through scale is just incredible. And I think it's um, sometimes it's underappreciated, but I think that, you know, LA really is, is punching above its weight because, you know, we, we aren't the largest city, but we are the second largest city. Um, and we have a ton of opportunity for change, not to mention we have a lot of inequity. We have a lot of disparity. We have a very diverse um, economy. And what we are able to show can be done in Los Angeles is actually very transferable to other parts of the country and other parts of the world. That it may feel like LA is sort of, you know, this island unto itself. It's not, you know, the challenges that we face, housing, you know, um, income disparities, uh, all kinds of climate impacts. Now, these are things that others are facing as well. I'm so glad that you you transformed my question about responsibility into opportunity, uh, because to have control of those proprietary departments is is massive, and, and the scale yeah. is massive, and so it just builds this leadership model for for other cities and for other states and other countries. I mean, uh, if, if LA can do it, you know, I mean, LA's reputation, right. I'm, I'm from the East Coast, you know, LA's reputation is just, ugh, gone, right? Too much, <laughs> too much traffic. Right, if they're LA, so far gone. <laughs> if LA can turn that around, uh, we all can. How much of your time is spent um, helping other cities? Uh, we've talked a little bit about this model and this leadership role. I know you're going to Climate Week, um, next week next week in new york, yeah. in, in new york city um that's right 
how much of your time is spent? And you must get calls from other cities. People want you to go speak at conferences. Uh, how do you, what, what's the balance there? What's, or what percentage of your time would you say is external versus internal? You know, one of the things that I did not expect or anticipate coming into this role was how close knit our counterparts, we all are, other CSOs around the country and frankly around the world. Um, that there are many institutions that have been set up for collaboration, for relationship building, for commiseration, you know, when needed, just for people to help each other. And we all really like each other. I mean, it has been one of the most rewarding things to have that direct connection to my counterparts, my peers across, you know, cities across the country and across the world. Something I didn't really anticipate was going to be such a important part of my experience personally and important part of how we do business and get things done in LA and how cities have organized themselves to get things done. True networks. Um, so that part is spending time um, with other cities is absolutely a two-way street. We benefit so much from that. And I, I hope that, you know, we are, LA is contributing to uh, the, the rest of the world and, and in terms of our experience. And that's the, the good, the bad, the ugly, what's working, what's not working. But, you know, I think when you say LA is really turning it around, I mean, I do feel that way. You know, we're the number one solar city in the country. We have more charging stations, you know, electric vehicle charging stations than any uh, city in the country. You know, we've completely remade and are continuing to kind of rethink and remake the water system in Los Angeles. I mean, you know, what a, a incredibly non-resilient uh, way to manage water through, you know, outside of our city dependencies. We're really changing that around to local, clean, safe, resilient water. Now, that has defined this city for a long time. Um, and of course, as you said, you know, working at the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power in the 90s, I mean, we are really the, the I think, focal point around the country now for charting a course to a 100% zero carbon grid. We took the time um, and the resources of three plus years and engaging, you know, two dozen sets of stakeholders uh, to develop a, a, a study called the LA 100 Renewable Energy Study to really understand our pathway. Ask A, can we do it? And B, how? And really ask our constituencies, our stakeholders, how do they want us to do it? It is their utility. Uh, and what we came away with, and this was done with the National Renewable Energy Lab, a preeminent laboratory of the federal government on renewable energy, an incredible partnership. And we came away with not only is a 100% zero carbon grid achievable, it can be reliable and affordable, and we can do it 10 years earlier than we thought. So that led us to a 10-year acceleration to 2035, you know, to commit to this goal. And, you know, that has had reverberations around the country. And it's been a real, I think, feather in the cap of the Department of Energy as well, because it gives them something to point to and a template where they can help other cities as well. So so impressive, and I was going to ask you what you're most proud of, but I think you're I think you're most proud of a lot of these, I and mean, there's so many initiatives that you've got going on. That, but but let's talk a little bit about local water because I could imagine some of our listeners being a little bit puzzled about how you can uh, shift from importing lots of water to local water. Yeah, and if I can just indulge you uh, in terms of things that we're most proud of. 
It's true. Scale is important and it's so exciting to feel like you can influence at scale, you know, at market scale, at technology scale and, you know, national, inter international policy scale. But we also have taken a really um, focused neighborhood level approach and place-based approach to our climate policy and climate action as well. So I, I have to say that I'm also really proud of and want to you know, ensure that that approach endures. And we've set up institutions in the city, a climate emergency mobilization office, institutions in the city to ensure that we are staying very closely connected to communities. And of course, to our, you know, most vulnerable, most impacted communities from, you know, history of environmental de degradation, history of racial injustice, really going there and saying, what is it that you want and you need and how do we develop programs, policies, bring in funding like the Watts Rising Collaborative down in Watts, which is a community that has always felt like they are last. And we have put them first in you know, solving community kind of uh, things that have come up from the grass, from the grassroots up after decades of engagement uh, to tell us, you know, what's really going to work in their communities around uh, you know, planting trees, installing kind of cooler surfaces, urban gardens, rooftop solar, zero emission local uh, local bus service, zero emission vehicle uh, car sharing. You know, we actually have a you know a lot of folks in Watts that the majority of folks don't have cars, so making sure that mobility is prioritized and clean mobility because because. Physical mobility is a gateway to economic mobility, and we've really taken that to heart. And so, you know, I think LA as a you know massive water importer, LA as a car centric, you know, car capital. These are things that we're really changing. So, you know, back to your water question. Uh, when I came in to the mayor's office, we were in the middle of a historic drought, and. Unfortunately, we're in the middle of a more historic drought now. <laughs> uh, we had a couple of big water years in between, but in the 2015-16 timeframe, we really had to wake up. The whole state of California and the whole West really had to wake up and think about our water supply differently. And so we are, we're retooling the city to recirculate our water, to capture water better. Um, and instead of sending water out to the sea, that we are, you know, we have uh, in, in LA's Green New Deal, we have our mantra being the five zeros, the zero carbon grid, zero carbon buildings, zero carbon transportation, zero waste and zero wasted water. And zero wasted water means no water sent out to the ocean, all water for beneficial use. And that can be for streams and tributaries and, you know, water quality there, but also cleaning up our water, recycling our water back into the drinking water system. And that requires a complete physical retooling of how we move water and the relationship between our um, wastewater agency, LA you know, Sanitation, and our drinking water agency, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. Um, an incredible, massive uh, jobs endeavor you know, to, to retool the the piping and tunnel system throughout the city and expanding all of these facilities to really take our reclaimed water and turn it into usable, potable, drinkable water. We have a goal for um, you know, zero waste water by 2035, 70% uh, local water, uh, really kind of unimaginable numbers just a decade or so ago. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, last couple of questions. 
What, what have your biggest challenges been? You know, biggest challenges, I would say, there's always trade-offs. Um, there's trade-offs in budgets. You know, there's trade-offs um, in uh, sort of timing of, of what we're asking of Angelinos. You know, a lot of these actions, water conservation itself, um, that takes a lot of learned behavioral change, getting out into the community. You know, we've had a, a tough couple of years. So I think a challenge of ours has really been, are we being heard by Angelinos? Are we hearing Angelinos? Are we getting out there and doing the outreach and the education and the awareness around the rebate programs, the changes in rules, you know, now we have to compost, that's a state law, you know, and, and what, how do they do that? <laughs> you know, there's, there's so many things that tree planting, how, why, how important it is to water your trees when we're telling you not to water your lawns. Very confusing. You know, these are confusing messages. Um, you know, during a flex alert, conserving energy, um, how to make sure that you can utilize incentive programs to, you know, be more energy efficient in your home to get an electric vehicle, to get a vehicle, electric vehicle charger, all of these things, making sure that we're really reaching people. Um, I don't think we've perfected that. Uh, looking around for more examples. I think there's great, you know, there's, there's things that we can pull from for different specific um, endeavors, but as a whole, there's so much more that I know we can be doing. So I'd say that's a, a big challenge is our desire to really be out in the community and making sure we're, we're really doing that. Interesting. It's almost you've, you've got the policy, you've got the, you've got the direction, you've got the leadership, the political leadership, you've got the plan, you've got the policy, and now it's the implementation. It's, it's it, taking a, an expression from the auto industry. It's where the rubber hits the road, right? It's, it, it is. And like I said, I mean, I think that implementation is, is, is going quite well, but making sure that people know about it, they feel it. Um, you know, we can metrics, statistics are one thing. You know, I can say that we have more electric vehicle chargers in the country, you know, in the city than any city in the country, as I said. But does someone have it in their neighborhood? You know, when we say that, have we really blanketed the the neighborhoods that may not have? EVs yet, you know, in more low income uh, neighborhoods, but we want those chargers to be there because we want to give confidence to people that they can, they can go electric. And we have, uh, you know, subsidies for EVs that we can provide. And so making sure we're getting that right, in addition to the numbers and the statistics is so important. Well, I must say, I'm, I'm very uh, pleased that you're in this position and that you're leading this charge for Los Angeles. We all, we all owe you our, our thanks. And you got a tough job. I mean, it's so multifaceted. Like you said about Earth Systems at Stanford, your cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary yeah. work. Your job is so interdisciplinary uh, that it's phenomenal. But how do you keep, how do you, you, you look great. You've, you've got lots going on. You're, you're healthy, you're vibrant. How do you, how do you maintain that balance? I know you have a child. Uh, I know you just bought a house. You got. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, Zoom, Zoom filters are everything, Ted. <laughs> you know, there's what that like touch up filter. Is that what it is? Um, no, but you know, 
thank you, first of all. It's very kind of you to say on, on, on many levels. Um, this is not something I do on my own. You know, I've got a just phenomenal team where we support each other you know, emotionally, and we support each other, like I got this and last minute thing comes in, and I'll, I'll get your back on this other thing I was working on, you know, we really do support each other, the entire mayor's office does. And frankly, the other really wonderful thing that has been so fulfilling is and has been a great accountability mechanism just for getting things done, is that the mayor, um, the mayor directed all general managers to uh, appoint departmental CSOs in every department. So not just the DWPs and the LA sanitations and the department transportations of the world where you know they have you know very clear sustainability metrics, but the LA PD, you know, the police department, the zoo, the libraries, uh, the fire department, we all work together. We have, I have a distributed army and family of, of sustainability officers in the city. The seven years that I've been here, we've never missed a monthly meeting. And I come away from these meetings going, God, this is just so incredible. The synergies that we end up uncovering, the enthusiasm people have, the, you know, the getting feedback that being a DCS, a departmental CSO has been one of the most fulfilling parts of a person's career in a city department. I mean, it's so fulfilling and wonderful. And then of course, as you say, I came back to my family. I couldn't have predicted it. You know, it's very, you shouldn't plan on if one lesson I've, I've taken away on career so far is you can't, can't bet on where your career path is going to go. Cause I never would have predicted this. And it's just so wonderful to be. And I, I depend so heavily on my, you know, very, very strong uh, family, you know, and, and familial fabric, uh, my parents, my, my siblings, my nieces and nephews, you know, we are, and my, of course, my, my husband and my four-year-old, she's going to be what, 13 in 2030. I mean, this is real stuff. You know, this is not far off. We really have to get this right. And we, we absolutely need that support system to, to keep us moving forward. So well put. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you more so for what you're doing. I'll look forward to being in touch with you. Thank you, Ted. I as well. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That's it. Thanks for listening to Flanagan's Ecologic. We'll see you next time.